to pull out your Bible. Let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah or Nehemiah chapter 13. If you can't find your Bible, um, I mean, if you don't have a Bible, you can check the seat back in front of you and you may find a Bible there. And you'll find Jeremiah 13 on page 352 of that Bible, if you're using the one in the seat back in front of you. Jeremiah chapter 13. As we wrap up our series going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah this summer. You know, they say that the ending is the most important part of the story. After all, the ending usually determines what the point of the story is, and if you leave the story feeling encouraged or discouraged. If you're like my wife and you don't like bad surprises at the end of the story, then you might be tempted to at least find out if the story ends happily or tragically before you commit to reading the book or watching the movie. So given that endings are, are such an important part of the story, why Nehemiah 13? Things had been going so well. God had brought his people home from captivity. Despite lots of setbacks, God had helped the people to rebuild their temple. And as we saw last week, despite lots more setbacks, Ezra and Nehemiah had courageously led the people in in turning back to God, turning away from their sins, rebuilding their city wall to provide them with protection and identity and then populating Jerusalem with people. Thank you. And, and, and then after Jerusalem had been populated, they purified the people, they purified the city, they pur- purified the, w- the walls as a holy place to God once more. After all that happened, we saw last week, in, in a grand act of, of commitment and, and thanksgiving, they had dedicated the city and themselves to God. And as the story crescendoed in Nehemiah 12, they remembered how God had graciously and powerfully restored them um, and all they'd been through and all that God had, had brought them back to and restored them to, their land, their city, their temple, their identity as a people, and, and their gratitude welled up as they worshipped, so much so that the sound of their rejoicing could be heard for miles around. Wow, what a conclusion, what an ending. Why not end right there with chapter 12? Why go on and add chapter 13? Chapter 13 is depressing. It's full of more setbacks and more problems. What a way to end the story. In chapter 13, you have God's people marrying foreign pagan spouses again, breaking the Sabbath day, God's holy day, failing to honor God with their possessions, And so the religious workers can't be supported and they all have to go out and find other jobs. If you've been following the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, then chapter 13 is like having deja vu. As you realize that these were all sins that the people had committed earlier in the story and that they'd repented of already and that they'd committed before God never to repeat again. Under the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people had promised God they wouldn't marry pagan spouses again. They had promised that they would honor God with their money and give faithfully toward God's house. They had promised that they would keep the Sabbath day. And now here comes Nehemiah 13 telling us that they went back on every one of these promises. 
why include Nehemiah 13? And why end the story with it? Because not only does Nehemiah 13 end the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, but even more importantly, do you realize it ends the whole Bible? At least the Bible as the people had it from the time of Nehemiah until 400 years later when the New Testament began. Now, I realize if you look in your Bible today, Nehemiah isn't the end of the Old Testament. After Nehemiah, there's Esther. But the story of Esther actually happened earlier in history before Nehemiah. There are also then the wisdom writings and the Psalms in your Bible, but they're all set earlier in history. And finally, there are the prophets, which also represent an earlier period of history before Nehemiah. Everything else in the Old Testament happens before Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the end of the Old Testament story. Nehemiah 13 is the end. I guess perhaps there might be one exception, and that's the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. And we're not quite sure what period of history Malachi addresses. Most scholars think that it addresses the time right around the time of Nehemiah. But interestingly, the the sins and the problems that Malachi addresses in his prophecies are almost identical to the ones Nehemiah is dealing with in Nehemiah 13. So either way, this is how the Old Testament story ends. With God's people still carrying on in their sinful ways. The very sinful ways that had landed them in exile in the first place, which the whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah was how they were trying to get out of that exile. Nehemiah says this himself in verses 17 and 18 of our chapter for today. He says to the people, what is this wicked thing that you're doing? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now, are you stirring up more wrath against Israel? Why Nehemiah 13? Why end God's word, the Old Testament scriptures, on this depressing, foreboding note? I mean, Nehemiah 13 is really discouraging, and we're going to look at that more closely now and see this in detail. Everything in this chapter has to do with God's holiness and how God's people were trading that holiness away in order to make a buck or to gain some power. Now, what's so great about holiness? Well, let me explain. To be holy means to be special and set apart. Like royalty is set apart from the common people in some countries. Like uh, red carpet VIP travelers are set apart from the rest of us in the airport and they have their own private lounge. Or like a Christmas tree is set apart from all the other ordinary trees and and is brought in and, and is decorated and is given special meaning and purpose. So, in a similar way, God is holy. God is set apart from the other so-called gods and, and set apart from, from human beings. God is special. God is different. God is superior. Yet holiness also has a strong moral dimension to it. The particular way that God is set apart is that God is morally in a different league. God is is so much more loving. God is so much more good. God has so much more integrity and righteousness and justice that no other God, no other person can compare to how good God is. 
God is set apart. God is holy. Now, to help people understand this, God put it this way for them. God said, think of it as clean and dirty. Morally speaking, I am holy. I am clean. And comparatively, everything else is dirty and unclean. My way is so lemon fresh scent, spick and span, that compared to me, everything else comparatively is like roaches and rats and vermin. And then here's the amazing part. God said to his people, I am choosing you to be my people and to become holy too. I'm going to clean you up. And you are going to be set apart and pure. You are going to be special. You are going to be holy. And so God gave his people a special land. A special city, a special temple, a special law code to teach them how to be good, to take on God's character themselves. And it was all careful. All of this was carefully cleansed and and set apart to be holy. And and so Israel was supposed to be a shining light in, in the darkness to all the other nations so that they too could be invited to come and get clean. But of course, the biblical story is the story of how God's people didn't want to be holy. Like a dog after it's had a bath, likes to go out and find the stinkiest place it can find to go roll in, right? So God's people ran out to be like all the other peoples around them. And to make a very long story short, because of their their heinous sins, God eventually punished them by sending them into exile. God took away their their pure, clean city and and temple and land and immersed them in the darkness and in the filth of the wicked, pagan, oppressive empires of Babylon and then Persia. So then God's people were up to their elbows in uncleanness. Until that is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah began. And then we see how God, in, in God's great mercy, brought his people back out of this unclean captivity, back to their, their own holy land. And they rebuilt their temple and they carefully purified it. They cleansed it again. And then they purified themselves. And they purified their whole city, we saw last week. They were staking out again a holy place, a, a clean place, where they were once again to be God's holy people, living in the presence of a holy God. And by the way, the priests and the Levites are supposed to be the guardians of this holiness. It's their job to to protect and to maintain the holiness, the, the purity of God's holy people and holy places. But then we come to Nehemiah 13. And we find that the people are are gonna go right back into the filth again. They will quite happily trade in their holiness to, to make a buck or to gain some power or some influence. Because as far as the people were concerned, it it was as if a former president of ours once said, it's the economy, stupid. Prosperity, affluence, that's what was more important to them than being the people of God. In Nehemiah 13, we see four ways that God's people do this, that they trade away holy space, holy time, holy families, and holy leadership. Let's look at those four. First, holy space. 
In verse 4, we meet a priest named Eliashib. Remember, the priests and Levites were our, our guardians of, of holiness. So it's this guy's job to protect the holiness of God's space. And Eliashib's particular responsibility is the storerooms for God's temple, which were connected right to the temple building. Now, of course, God's holy temple is to be strictly holy and pure. Nothing is supposed to contaminate it because a holy God is within. But Eliashib has other priorities. He's closely associated with a guy named Tobiah the Ammonite. We meet Tobiah earlier in the book of Nehemiah. Tobiah is a foreigner who presumably uh, worships pagan gods. He's a high-level official in, in the region, and he's unscrupulous, he's corrupt, and he's one of the main opponents of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah set out to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, Tobiah viciously opposed Nehemiah, trying to, to keep him from, from promoting the welfare of God's people. Along with Sanballat, who we'll meet a little later in the story, Tobiah is Nehemiah's enemy number one or two. And what does Eliashib the priest do? He gives Tobiah prime real estate to further his agenda right in the temple itself. Probably Tobiah wanted this space for three reasons. Because you have to realize that temples back then were the center of ancient life. They were the hub. They were right at the heart of what was most important happening in any city. They didn't have the separation of church and state yet. So... So the reasons that uh, Tobiah would want this space, A, having digs at the temple gave Tobiah honor and, and status, allowing him to be closely associated with all the bigwigs and the muckety-mucks who were associated with the temple. It was like being a lobbyist and having an a, a office right on Capitol Hill in, in a prime spot. So B, this space not only gives Tobiah honor and status, but also influence. Now he can, he can get his hand in, into what goes on in and around the temple, rubbing shoulders with important people, influencing all that goes on there, and watching out for those who might oppose him. Also C, Tobiah also probably wants this space for economic reasons. This was a very large space from the sounds of it, a warehouse-sized space that was supposed to be where all of the grain offerings and, and the other temple wares were kept. So having this space is like having an anchor store at the local mall. Tobiah has a lot of stuff we learn in this space. Presumably, he's selling it. I know some translations say in verse 8 that it's household goods that he's got there. The original Hebrew is actually not so clear what all this stuff is, there's a good chance that he's running a huge retail outlet out of this space, selling to the crowds who come to the temple. And Eliashib, the priest, who's supposed to guard the holiness of the temple, is Tobiah's buddy. He's right in there with him, colluding in all of this, helping the, this enemy of God's people to further his political and economic agenda right in the temple itself this place that is supposed to be pure and set apart for God. Now, the funny uh, irony of this, the, maybe it's not funny, um, is that this space is only empty. It's only available for Tobiah to use for his unholy purposes because God's people have stopped giving God the gifts and the offerings and the tithes that they promised to give, and so God's storehouse stands empty. And so lots of God's workers, the Levites and the priests who are supposed to live off these offerings, have had to quit their jobs and go off into the countryside in search of other work. 
Eliashib and Tobiah and the rest of the people have traded in God's holiness to make a buck and to gain some political influence. Well, when Nehemiah finds out, he's absolutely livid and he drives Tobiah out. And he challenges the people to bring God their tithes and their offerings so that God's storehouse will be filled up again with what it's supposed to be filled up with and God's Levites can get back to work. Nehemiah is um, restoring holy space. Second, holy time. The second incident we read about, starting in verse 15, has to do with the Sabbath. This was the day, the seventh day of each week that God had set apart for the people to keep as a day of rest, a day to remember and to focus on God. God told the people right in the Ten Commandments to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. But just like people today, people got frustrated with this because it was one less day that they could use to make a buck. And so they started trading away this holy time and working on the Sabbath. They, they were also setting up shop. They were selling produce and goods. The Sabbath was becoming just another shopping day. Not only for the Jews, but, but also for out-of-towners from the surrounding nations who were taking, uh, seizing the economic opportunity and bringing imported goods into Jerusalem and selling them to God's people on the Sabbath. And the Jewish nobles who were in charge of the city were letting all of this go on. Again, God's people were trading away God's holy day in exchange for cash. And they don't want to give it up. So finally, Nehemiah has to shut and lock the gates when the Sabbath begins. So that no retailers can get into the city until the Sabbath is over. And some wait outside. They wait overnight, wanting to be the first in line to beat the competition the next morning. And so Nehemiah threatens them in order to get them to go home. And then Nehemiah recruits the Levites, who, who are back to work now. And um, remember, it's their job to guard what's holy. So he recruits them to guard the gates of the Sabbath to protect God's holy time. All right, let's move on now third to holy families. God's holy people were, were once again marrying foreign pagan spouses. And as a result, their children were growing up foreign and pagan so much that half of them didn't even read or speak the language that God's word was written in. Now, remember, people very often didn't marry for love back then. Rather, marriages were arranged, usually um, with the honor and the status of the family in mind. When it was time for your marriage uh, to, to help or for your family to help arrange your marriage, they generally picked someone for you of equal status and wealth as your family. And if it was possible, they'd marry you up to gain more, uh, uh, well, to raise the stock of your family, to give it more prominence, more wealth. And this was especially true among the upper classes and um, the nobility who often married for political reasons, to form political alliances. And in verse 28, we learn about Eliashib, the high priest. Now, we're not sure if this is the same Eliashib we saw earlier or a different Eliashib. But um, it turns out that this Eliashib has married one of his grandsons, who would be a high-ranking priest as well. Um, he's married him to a daughter of Sanballat. Now, remember, Sanballat, along with Tobiah, were the main enemies of Nehemiah. And as best we can tell from other historical sources, Sanballat was probably a high-ranking official from Samaria. 
And in other words, he was pro-Samaritan and anti-Jewish. Um, and, and yet here he is in bed with the Jewish priesthood, or it's actually his daughter who's in bed with the priest. Um, but this is a political alliance here. These families are now closely connected through marriage. God's priests, who are supposed to be guardians of God's holiness, are closely allied with God's enemies here. And evidently, this wasn't an isolated case. Other Jews were intermarrying with pagan peoples for the sake of political or economic advantage, no doubt. And their kids are growing up not even knowing how to speak the Jewish language. People are sacrificing the holiness of their families to make a buck. And then fourth, finally, holy leadership. We've already alluded to this, that the leadership of of God's people was also being sacrificed for the sake of money and power. The priests, the Levites, who were supposed to be the upholders and the protectors of God's holiness, instead are becoming compromised and ineffective. Either because they've made compromises in their marriages, or in their business dealings and and political alliances, um, or because they've just had to quit their jobs and find other work because God's people were, were not giving God enough of their wealth to support them. The godly leadership, which was so necessary to sustain the work of God, was being traded in for cash. It was all about cash and and political influence and power. These people were willing to give up God's holiness in order to get ahead. They were willing to trade in God's holy space, God's holy time, holiness in families, and holy leadership as well. And that's the way the book of Nehemiah ends. Depressing. Why end the story on this note? Why Nehemiah 13? Well, the answer is simple, right? Because it happened. The Bible never candy coats the truth. God's word is a raw, honest, realistic book. Not only did these things happen in the past, but, but they still happen, don't they? Wouldn't it be safe to say that, that many of us are, are just as guilty as these people in Nehemiah 13? That we, like them, have traded what is holy for cash? Now, of course, God has invited us today to become part of God's people through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so holiness has less to do today with with worshiping in a certain place or or observing external rituals. It has a lot more to do with our commitment to Jesus Christ. And um, as as Christ teaches us how to take on the character of God, the the love, the the mercy, the, the faithfulness, the justice, the goodness, which make God holy, which God is now inviting us to take on to become holy people too. But still, we very often wind up trading this holiness for cash. First, we trade God's space. Of course, we don't have a temple today to worship in. Jesus did away with physical temples. Now God's space is where? It's it's God's people. Wherever two or three of God's people meet together, Jesus says, he is there also. And so... That gathering is holy space. Be it a small group, be it a worship service. But it's easy to neglect God's people, to to meet with other believers when it's convenient, 
when we don't have uh, other more important activities to do. And uh, after all, we, we know that God's people will still be there. At least we assume they'll still be there when we get done running around doing everything else that we need to do. And so we trade in God's holy space to, to make a buck or to spend a buck on goods or on activities or on a more secure and enriching life for ourselves. We also trade, second, God's holy time. We can't find time for a day of rest, a day to abide in Christ. Because again, we, we've got to make money or we've got to spend money. You know, I've always found that the more money people have, the, the busier and the more stressed out they are. After all, money opens up doors. It creates opportunities. When you have money, you can afford to pay for gas and insurance for two or three cars. And, and you can join programs. You can enroll your kids in more activities. And so holy time gets crowded up, or crowded out. And as a result, our stress goes up. And our sense of, of peace and, and spiritual refreshment that holy time provides goes down. Third, we trade in the holiness of God's family. In some cases, by choosing a spouse who doesn't share our spiritual commitments. Uh, in, in many cases, by choosing a career or, or a job which leaves little time for family life. Or, or prioritizing our schedules in such a way that, that we're doing all that we can to prepare our, our kids to get into a great college and to, to launch a great career. But, but we're investing little time and, and little money and little effort in nurturing and, and furthering our children's characters and, and their spiritual development and our family's spiritual life together. Fourth, finally, we trade away God's holy leaders. Now, we don't have Levites and priests anymore. Um, Christ was the true and the ultimate high priest who once and for all made sacrifice for sins. But we, we do still pay some Christians um, to be leaders, to be workers, so that they can devote their full efforts to Christ's purposes. They might be missionaries. They might be humanitarian aid workers. They might be college ministry staff workers or pastors or other church or parachurch workers. But often these leaders, these workers are, are held back and they're, they're frustrated for lack of resources. They see great opportunities in front of them for the advance of God's kingdom, but they can't act on them because there just isn't enough money. And, and many of them are forced to give up what they thought was their calling for lack of funds and to go and find other work to support themselves. Meanwhile, for us as the potential givers, Many of us find it impossible to give God even the 10% of our income that they did back in the Old Testament. Others dutifully give their straight 10%, but they lack the vision and, and the passion and the generosity to do better than that. After all, our finances are so tight, right? Yet, yet somehow we, we find money for the new car and the special vacation or the, the purchase from the big, big box um, retailer. Could it be that some of us are trading in God's holy leaders for the sake of a buck or two? Holy space, holy time, holy families, holy leaders. My point is that Nehemiah's problems aren't unique to Nehemiah. They're still alive and well today. That's why Nehemiah 13. 
This is our story. This is a mirror held up to our faces so that we can see ourselves. But there is good news. Nehemiah 13 might be the end of the Old Testament, but it's not the end of God's story. In fact, it nicely sets us up for what comes next. And that is that when the New Testament begins, God gives his final answer to our continued unholiness and uncleanness and compromising ways. And it is not condemnation. It is not another punishment, another exile like the people deserve. No, instead, it is the full and final forgiveness and salvation that God offers us. It's a massive extension of mercy and grace. As God sends his own son to accomplish what neither Nehemiah nor those who came before him could accomplish. And that is that Jesus came to make his people finally and forever holy and clean and pure and good. Again, not by rebuilding a a holy temple or enforcing religious rituals, but by dealing with our hearts. Giving us new hearts, giving us clean hearts. Hearts that want to please God, that want to be good, that want to be generous and faithful and merciful and true, that want to have the same holy character that God in heaven has. Christ makes us holy and gives us clean hearts in two ways. First, by taking all of our uncleanness, sweeping it out from under all the carpets of our hearts, getting it out into the open, and then sweeping it away onto the cross where it can be done away with once and for all, leaving us forever clean and holy in God's sight. Lemon fresh, spick and span. And second, Christ does this by then actually giving us new hearts and teaching and training us to live in new ways so that we can take on God's heart and character as our own so that we can become holy like God is holy, God's special people. So we can live in in holy space, gathering with God's people. So that we can keep holy time, time for rest, refreshment, worship, abiding in Christ. So that we can raise and participate for those God, who God calls us to this, in holy families, which are faithful and which learn to love in healthy ways. As we are led by holy leaders who encourage us and challenge us forward. I, for one, am glad that Nehemiah 13 is not the end of the story. That Christ came to accomplish what Nehemiah could not. So the question for us is, are we willing to follow Christ and let him make us holy? Let's pray. I'm going to guide you in a time of silent prayer in in your heart. You may want to take a minute and confess the ways that you have traded in God's holiness for cash or power or influence. It might have to do with holy time, holy space, holy families, holy leaders, or something else.
Jesus Christ, when he came, said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. He said that he had come to seek and save those who were lost. He came for the unclean, for the unholy, to let them know the good news that they too could find forgiveness and come back to God. And so the book of 1 John tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So take a minute and feel free to ask God or to thank God for forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And then we remember that Jesus offers to give us a new heart. When we realize that we can't make our own heart clean like it should be. That Jesus invites us to come and to receive a new heart, a clean heart from him. So I invite you to ask him to give you a new heart. And all God's people said, amen. If that's the first time you ever prayed like that, talked to God like that, I'd love, I'd love to hear about it afterwards. We'll invite the worship team to come now and lead us in a closing song.